0: that's what we're here to celebrate this morning welcome May god bless us now as we open our hearts and open the word let's pray father living sacrifices motivated by the love of Jesus knowing what he's done for us the door he's opened the bridge he's built the hope he's given And I'm praying now, Lord, may we be more resolute, more focused, and more determined that this work should be strong to the finish. Bless us now as we consider Christian education in its full spectrum. And guide us, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna start out in a way that's gonna challenge everybody just a little bit, but I've gotta do it. I have a book on my shelf entitled The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. The premise of the book is that human civilization is ultimately an elaborate, symbolic defense. It's a mechanism against the knowledge of our mortality. That, in turn, acts as an emotional and intellectual response to our basic survival mechanism. Now, I want you to think about the name of the book, the denial of death. I want you to think about all the different outlets that we have today that that try to take our attention away from the ultimate, it's not unmitigated, the cross has completely changed the trajectory for those that embrace our dear Jesus. But until that moment comes, the undeniable reality Deus, though he may be, is that there's only two certainties in life. Benjamin Franklin, thank you, no thank you. There's a certainty of death and taxes. Our modern society is stuck in a dynamic of knowing how to manage the mechanism. You can plunge into this addiction or that besetting sin or this great opportunity, But there is eventually a desire to be out from under the weight of the fact that someday only one thing is waiting for the human race and something better for those that have been merged in, reborn, remade in the image of Jesus. It's it's something much better than we can imagine. But in this modern day, we must decipher the messages we're receiving from the agendas they represent. For we've long since passed the day of objectivity in reporting. Now there's an angle, and you have to be listening to understand the angle. So, whether it's radical right or liberal left, we're constantly in the posture of trying to decipher is there anything else I should know? Did I get the full message? Which is why when paul will write to the galatians he'll say i'm free of your blood for i've declared to you the whole truth now mind you there are times when the whole truth is not appropriate it needs to come in pieces in the right time and the right way but that's not the subject of my presentation today the subject of my presentation today is the peril of Adventist education. And the first thing I want to talk about, which is not one of the main points but undergirds the whole thing, is the dynamic of fear that has racked our society. Now, in the month of April, Michael Klompas, medical doctor and master's of public health in the Harvard Medical School, wrote an article about masks. Now, Wear the mask where you need to wear the mask. Wear the mask according to what you need. As I said in the first service, don't step out in front of a car, but we are going to have to keep crossing the street. But I do want us to be informed. If you're concerned about carrying something or giving something, make an informed decision. So they took this initial article that he wrote, and the right was making a heyday of it, suggesting that there's no need for masks which is absolutely not my point and absolutely not theirs. But because that was happening, because we can't have honesty in communication, they had a follow-up correspondence on June 3 called Universal Masking in the COVID-19 Era. The last paragraph is all I'm going to read. It's only two paragraphs long. You can look it up. This is from the New England Journal of Medicine. So I've attempted to bring you something this morning that I hope will mitigate the dynamics of fear and make you prudent and proper, thoughtful and sensitive, without simply falling into one camp or the other. But most of all, my goal is to remove your fear. I'll read the last two sentences. A growing body of research shows that the risk of SARS-CoV-2 transmission is strongly correlated with the duration and intensity of contact. The risk of transmission among household members can be as high as... Now, if you sat through the first service, you know what the number is. If you were living with someone who had COVID, they're suggesting the option, the idea, the potential of you getting it has a number. What is that number? Get your number. If you're living with people who have COVID, if someone in your house has it, what is the percent likelihood that you'll get it? You got your number? The number they give... Is 40 percent. Whereas the risk of transmission from less intense and less sustained encounters is below. Get your number. The risk of transmission from less intense and sustained encounters is below. Are you ready? Got your number? One, two, three, four, five. That's their number, five percent. Now why am I doing this? One more sentence, the finding is also borne out by our recent research associated mask wearing with less transmission of SARS-CoV-2, particularly in close settings. So I guess there were three sentences, one more. We therefore strongly support the calls of public health agencies for all people to wear masks when circumstances compel them to be within six feet of other for sustained periods. Now, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to calibrate this thing the right way so you know when to wear it and when not to wear it. So this morning, some of you are and some of you aren't. That's a personal choice, praise the Lord. We respect all of you for the spectrum you're in and the journey you're on. We don't know all of your circumstances. We don't know if you live with someone who's immunologically suppressed. We don't know if you live with someone who's elderly. We don't know about your own health. So we want to respect it. At the same time, quoting from Ernest Becker's book, The Denial of Death, I want to read two paragraphs to you. The first one is by Kierkegaard, the famous psychoanalyst. And this is what he says. Now, I'm going to set it up before I read it to you because I've heard all kinds of stories being a pastor in this community. I know there's people, they won't put a mask on even if a Mack truck's going to run them over, all right? And I know there's people that have actually been holed up in their house for months without ever going out. Now, I'm not here to cast judgment on either side. I'm here to recalibrate the needle. I'm especially here thinking about our young people today because if we are not careful, we will mentally and psychologically traumatize a whole generation. Now, I'm not a psychoanalyst. And while I would never support all of any psychoanalyst's writing, I find this to be very telling. One paragraph out of page 72 Becker's book, Kierkegaard is warning the parent To let the child do his own exploration of the world and develop his own sure experimental powers. He knows that the child has to be protected against dangers and that watchfulness by the parent is of vital importance, but he doesn't want the parent to obtrude his own anxieties into the picture to cut off the child's action before it's absolutely necessary. Today we know that such an upbringing alone gives the child a self-confidence in the face of experience that he would not have if it were overlooked. It gives him an inner sustainment. If you didn't catch the sentence in there about the parent obtruding his own anxieties onto the picture, you missed the point. Statistically speaking, from zero to seventeen, there is one one-hundredth of a percent. These are the statistics of those who have actually died from COVID. Now, that means when you take out the immunologically suppressed group, that number probably goes to a thousand or a ten-thousandth of a percent. What is my point? My point is that if you project the anxiety of the modern media into your family and onto your children, you will categorically run them backwards on the mental health spectrum, just a little farther in the book. Towards the end, page 210, in the segment on mental illness, the more you shrink back from the difficulties and the darings of life, the more you naturally come to feel inept, the lower is your self-evaluation. It is ineluctable. If one's life has been a series of silent retreats, One ends up firmly wedged into a corner and has nowhere else to retreat. This state is the bogging down of depression. And hear this last sentence. Fear of life leads to excessive fear of death. Now, if our children are to grow up like calves in the stall, Ellen White's quote, reference to the Scriptures, it is exceptionally important that we do not project this age's anxiety onto their little lives, especially when they have an almost 0% chance, statistically, of dying from this disease. And as for your concern for the elderly, that's a whole different story. You have an immunocompromised person in your home, that's a different story. But I've heard a variety of stories, including a three-year-old who wanted to hug her middle-aged aunt, and she had been told no. Or the five-year-old who hadn't had a hug from his mother in months. Now, I fear that the pall that is cast about is such that discerning is disappearing. So I'm appealing to you Remember that all your days were written in a book before any one of them came to be. And your children need to know they will live as long as Jesus wants them to live without, that is, presumption. And this is where every family has to make a decision. But if Dr. Klompas from Harvard tells us that within six feet, with intense contact, put it on, put it on. But if it's less, make sure that you're careful about how you're managing the emotional environment you're projecting onto someone else. Because I want to tell you, it takes nothing to ramp up fear in a human being. It drips out. It squirts out. It spouts out. We've got to put it down in order to live, and we are going to have to keep going somehow. So this morning... Let me just say the greatest peril to the future of God's work, God's families, God's churches, God's schools will undoubtedly always be the one that's existed from the beginning. And the great lever on Revelation chapter 12 and 14 is fear. Can't buy or sell. Especially in a a non-autonomous and independent society eventually can't live Folks, I am here today to challenge the dynamic that's out there intelligently, prudently, wisely, compassionately, but it's absolutely imperative because I'm quite confident. Now let's roll into the education side of this. I am very confident that if we come to a moment where we must sustain an online model for Christian education, we are going to furlough Christian teachers left and right like you've never seen before. We're gonna see Christian education take a hit that it has never ever taken in the experience of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And while we should not and must not run contrary to objective dialogue and data, we must also recognize that we will never be able to tamp down the elemental concern with our mortality. The denial of death is something that it appears that some think we have the complete ability to control, and I'm here to assure you today, it just ain't the fact. So don't step out in front of a moving truck, but keep crossing the street, friends, because we're going to have to go forward somehow, and all around this globe, people are coming to this. I had somebody say to me the other day, you realize that when the stock market crashed, it took about a year and a half for the depression to really be on us. What about the deaths of despair? What about the economic hardship that led to multiple levels of increase in deaths of despair? You can't just print two or three trillion dollars of money over and over again and think there's not gonna be a payday on it. Somehow we're gonna have to figure out how to keep going. That's my point. And if in your home you're projecting something else, Then you're actually leaving a mental health legacy that will be absolutely playing into the hand of the enemy of your children's souls. Take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and open them up to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12. John 12. The first peril of Seventh day Adventism will be easy for you to listen to, very easy. John chapter 10, looking at verse 12. Jesus is the consummate good shepherd. Nobody made more enemies in three and a half years than Jesus. He can have the Sanhedrin tracking him down, he can have the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes hot on his tail. When they're not mad at him, the the, the apostles, the 12 disciples, and the rest of his followers can be questioning him. His own parents can think he's crazy, and the masses will leave him behind. Jesus was absolutely committed to only one thing, the faithful shepherding of the flock in the attempt to turn back the battle at the gates because Satan had almost completely hijacked the mentality and the culture of the Israelite experience in the days of Christ. But Jesus will do. He will practice what he preaches. Verse 10. He says, I'll start in 10:10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, but there's a contrasting statement. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd. In other words, there's a huge heart difference here. Who's not the owner of the sheep? And it's not just a financial interest that's involved here. Sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep, and he flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand, and he's not concerned about the sheep. I'm here to tell you the first peril of Adventist education in this moment is cowardly, proud, half-hearted, dishonest preachers, and you can all say amen, all right? But the rest of the sermon isn't going to be that nice to you. Yeah. You can't train a pastor that the church school is in the way of the progress of the church. You can't have a pastor who won't take advantage of the megaphone God's given them. You know, pastors sometimes don't know much. Sometimes they know more than people think. But the one thing they do have as they have this little bitty beige thing hanging on the side of their cheek. It's called a microphone. And they get to be the ones that call cadence for what really matters for God's people on the way to the heavenly home. Pastors have to be bold enough in private to talk to people who are making bad decisions. They have to be discreet enough about timing. They have to be willing to listen. They have to be fundraisers. Sometimes they have to be reformers, and very few people like that. But the idea that a man or a woman fulfilling a shepherding role would run away from the responsibilities and the challenges that it takes to keep a church school going. And by the way, through the years, I've always said the hardest thing I ever do is help keep a church school going. Now, mind you, if you get enough people in your school, it can take a long time before crisis sets in. When you're running a little school with 24 kids in it or 12 or six, you can be staring death at the door every year. We're going to open this place back up or not. I've overseen a church where where we had just one little bitty classroom with one young, inexperienced teacher. Yes, she made some mistakes. It wasn't my job to point them all out. I was running scrimmage for her. I was running interference. I was winning her confidence so that in the end, she could get a kind word of course adjustment, not sometimes the cruel one that comes from the parent that's not very self-aware about their children's challenges. Yes, a cowardly pastor Will be the death knell of Christian education, whether the door gets shut and the nails are put in the coffin, or whether it just goes downhill. And by the way, going downhill is not any one individual's responsibility, but the pastor has the first responsibility and privilege to announce the primacy of the crown jewel ministry of Seventh day Adventism, which is Christian education. Amen. Proud men thinking that in their own wisdom, they're going to produce something new to turn this thing around. We don't need them. Have hearted shepherds who don't understand that yes, they're going to give up a few pieces of relational leadership flesh on the way, but it'll be worth it. Some kid will be in school that wasn't there before. Take a few risks because the church doesn't have a big war chest to fund over there, but they believe in it, and they're going to do something about it. Write a check out of their own account We need honest preachers who can face their fears, move forward in faith, challenge the rest to do it, and not be afraid because the education of our young people means now more than it ever did before. We can't be lazy or short-sighted. Take the time to listen, to talk, to work, to challenge. Go the extra mile and you'll get the extra respect. Get the extra wisdom in prayer and you'll have the extra influence. Take the extra time and the extra risk to challenge and you'll get the heavenly affirmation and provision. And by the way, if you're listening, preacher, now or later on, the worst parent for a teacher to deal with is a dishonest preacher. There's no worst animal, I don't mean that in the truest sense, that's a generic phrase, than a PK whose father or mother is not in tune with the challenges and the teacher's got to bear the brunt of the pastor's lack of personal awareness and responsibility. Pastors need to be particularly careful. They're turning their children over to somebody who didn't give them their genes and didn't give them their training, and now they do have the job of helping shape, mold, and direct and help them on the way to heaven. Children are resilient pastors they, your kids will have many benefits. There will be a few mistakes made on your kids, but they'll pale in comparison to the number of mistakes you made on your own kids. Give the teacher a break. They're a partner, and in some case, they're a remediator of your efforts or mistakes. Honesty is a big deal. Okay, let's go to number two. The second peril of Adventist education is the peril of nominal and secular homes. Nominal, it means in name only. You're not taking the time to be the first pastor and teacher at your house. And somehow you think the teacher is gonna be the recovery system. Somehow you think it's gonna be a herd immunity against sin that gets your child through the pearly gates because you live in a Mecca, just isn't so. Take your Bibles and turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, nominal and secular home environments. Why are your kids watching the same thing that's being advertised to everybody else? Why are your kids reading the same thing? Why are your kids listening to the same thing? You can inoculate them against the Holy Spirit. You can immunize them against the convictions that will lead to conversion and keep them out of heaven. And your teachers cannot fix that usually. Usually. I stand before you as a complete exception because my mother, who left the church, I'm not sure that in her youth she ever met Christ. She had opportunities, I'm certain. I was the only boy in a graduating class of about six. Every single one of those girls, one was maybe not so strong, but most of the rest of those homes all were what you would have called at least regular Seventh-day Adventist homes. Interestingly enough, I'm quite confident that I am the only of my eighth grade class of 1978, I am probably the only one of those five or six kids still in the church. And I'm gonna tell you why. You may agree, you may not agree. Because I was in an environment with no profession of Christianity. I was in a place where it was just clear to me Jesus was not the center of anything here. But my classmates all came from Seventh-day Adventist homes where I suspect the influences, I'm going to be real, I'm going to go really careful here because I know their parents, many of them dedicated parents, but I do know this, if we want the best opportunity for our kids. There's going to have to be more than the cultural class of Adventism sitting on the airplane to heaven. We're going to have to move up into the first class of principled, prioritized living. God's church, God's mission, the broken, the lost. Nominal and secular home environments are used to watching and doing what everybody else is doing. And don't you make me feel uncomfortable, pastor. Sorry, we've moved on from point one. We're on point two now. Don't you make me uncomfortable. Don't you make me inconvenient. This is what the Bible says, Deuteronomy 6, 5. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's not happening in a lot of homes. Oh, nobody's bad. There's nothing quick to tag. It's just what Kendra Creasy-Dean calls in her book, Almost Christian, moral therapeutic deism. In other words, all that gook means Nice people with no sense of obligation to anybody. They're not going to do anything really stupid, and embarrass you, but they're not committed to anything but themselves. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. I'm going, to, I'm going to preach for a few more minutes on that verse. Jesus said as a John the Baptist, why did you go out to listen to him? Why? Why bother? Did you just go out to hear a reed shaking in the wind? What compelled you to listen to a person who was calling you to repentance? In the back of our hearts and minds, we know there's some kind of sin sick, not so well diagnosed, not so easily mitigated disease. Some of you have sat in doctor's offices and heard words that make you tremble. Cancer, autoimmune. When those things happen, as difficult as it is, we don't degrade, we don't denigrate, we don't deny the doctor. We initially want good intervention. We've come to a place in modern society where modern secular religion is content with the topical ointment of affirmation, 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 when down inside there's something waiting to absolutely capitalize on the religious experience, destroy it, drive it into the ground, and end up in eternal death. We must come back to the place where our hearts are humble enough before God to say, you know, God, I still got something to happen there. I need you to do something for me. Because truth of the matter is, I get a whole lot more excited about that than this. These words, verse 6, which I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You have to remember, this is the deuteronomos. This is the second giving of the law. We had a duet up here, all right? That was two people singing. Nomos is law. Deuteronomos is the second giving of the law. This is the second generation to get out of Egypt. We're going over this again. One generation stumbled and is buried in the sand. This generation is supposed to be different. There's to be a diligent transmission, not only of values, but of practices. Not only of teaching, but of training. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and daughters and talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down, when you rise up. I challenge you, I'm the preacher. When you get home today and you're sitting around the table See how far a conversation about the sermon can go. Or is it the most uncomfortable thing that will happen on these 24 hours? Is there anything in our house that needs to change? Would the word nominal and secular be able to be tagged to my house, to my heart, to God's house? Teach them diligently Maybe other weeds are growing up in the garden of our hearts that's choking out the plant of salvation. You shall bind them, verse 8, as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Do you get the idea that the airwaves are ripe with the dialogues of the divine? Do you get the idea that the visuals are out there, the things hanging on our walls, hanging in our kids' rooms? Do you get the idea that the The culture of the heart and the home was such that we were living in this divine privilege relationship with the creator of the universe and under the divine obligation to stand apart and to go into a lost world to win them back. Verse 10 and 11 are important. Then the result, it shall come about when the Lord God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build which you did not build, and houses full of good things, which you did not fill, and hewn sisters, which you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant, and you eat and you are satisfied, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Now I'm here to tell you, there's not a person who's attended our university, our academy, our elementary school here, or the one over by the, the academy, Ruth Murdoch. There's not a person here, well, maybe one, maybe even a very few, but I doubt there's a person here who laid a single brick or poured one yard of concrete to build any of those institutions. They're all long dead and gone, which means our generation Inherited them. And the weight of the inheritance appears to be too great. Because, and let's go a little farther, I had somebody in this community said to me, not firsthand, but very reputably secondhand, that my son says, I return my tithe and I might put my kids in church school. What else does God want from me, or something along that line? Do you know what? You're probably living in a nicer house than your parents lived in. And your parents probably lived in a nicer house than their parents lived in. Which means that every year the societal generational blessing that came to you was either squandered in filling your houses up with things that are actually in the way of the mission or you're actually channeling everything you've got into the sense that you've got one life to live and you're gonna get as many people to a knowledge of your best friend Jesus as you can possibly get. It's not any different for our generation than it was for theirs. We've inherited an awful, awful lot, praise God. I am so thankful for my grandparents' generation and my parents' generation. I barely knew my great-grandparents. Only one of them was a Seventh-day Adventist. But I want to tell you, every prayer, every dollar, every hour that established an actual physical building for me to go to church in, and then a school for me to go to school in. The problem when we have nominal and secular homes is that the school is constantly fighting an uphill battle to hold up the standard of holy living and it turns the teachers or the principal into the bad guy or bad gal why even my backslidden mother knew that the teacher was the authority the school was not the problem and their, her little ronnie was going to get it right what's happened to us but somehow we become so fragile in the parenting arena that we're constantly looking back over our shoulder to see how we're doing. You probably don't need to look back over your shoulder. If your kids are like my for, they'll probably give you plenty to look at right in the front in the middle of the day and say, "Who taught you how to do that?" The insecurity that results in the parenting mindset from the absence of true depth of person in Christ leaves them malleable to public opinion and other people's ideas. And it leaves them manipulatable by their own children. And that is parental malpractice. We've got to walk with God. We need to be right with our spouse. They need to speak up when we're trending out of a strength into a weakness. We need to be well-informed as to our responsibilities. How long has it been since you picked up the book, Adventist Home, Child Guidance? We need to know what the main pillars are for raising moral children, and we can't constantly be evaluating ourselves thinking that somehow I've got to look successful along the way, I want to assure you if there's one thing kids will do is they will make you look unsuccessful along the way and you're going to have to decide if you move according to the fear reaction of, oh, that didn't look good, or whether you move according to the love action of this is what needs to happen now. Insecure people don't make good parents and the greatest security we can have is the security of Christ. Eli was afraid of what would happen if he stood up to Hophni and Phinehas. Instead, Hophni and Phinehas are eternally lost, and probably Eli too, from my reading of Patriarchs and Prophets. It's not child's play. The third thing we need to be afraid of in regards to the peril of Adventist education is nominal and formal teachers. You say, Pastor, you like the word nominal, don't you? And I say, no, I I hate the word nominal, actually. How many of you want a nominal romance? How many of you want a nominal marriage? How many of you want a nominal mechanic? A nominal surgeon? I want a nominal CPA. I want a nominal lawyer. I want someone nominal to wash the dishes at Taco Bell. (laughs) Jesus said to our church, I wish that you were hot or cold. Now, I want to tell you, we have so many dynamic and vibrant teachers, and it should not be the parents of the nominal homes that drag them down. But if you're a teacher listening to me here today or aspiring to the great work of the ministry of education, you need to know something. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And since I started my sermon on cowardly, proud, half-hearted preachers, you need to know that if you run into one, you better be standing on the rock so you can respectively hold your ground. (laughs) I'm so proud of the teachers at our Village Adventist Elementary School. They are growing so powerful in their influence over the kids and to watch this revisioning process and one of our teachers just spontaneously reading through the book Education in one of the visioning meetings we were in recently, talking about the Bible as an actual textbook It is so exciting to watch our educators in this locale refocus, revision, recommit to see the fragrance of their person, to watch the kids brighten up when they show up. But this should be everywhere in all places. God himself stands by the side of a vibrant, principled, beautiful teacher. And may we be praying for these people But I can assure you, in some places, it's not the ministry of education, it's a job. And it'll never work that way. Number four, the peril of Adventist education is traumatically impacted by what I'll call Laodicean churches. Some of them are big and sophisticated. Some of them are little and weak, but big and sophisticated doesn't spell strong, and little doesn't spell weak. There are little church schools out there that are discipling some of the greatest minds and best characters, and there are big schools doing the same, but it's all built on all people at all levels in every component of the institution, the church, the home, the school, it's all built on everybody directing their efforts in one direction. And if you think it's going to get easier, think again, it's not. We need to quit taking our cues from Protestantism They long since abandoned sola scriptura and letting the truth cut where it will, and they've embraced a consumer business like mentality. So you get what you want with a good dose of, I'm okay, you're okay. We cannot be ignorant of our real responsibilities. Jesus is going to ask us someday hold on to your seats here, where's the little flock I gave you? that's right. Where is that little flock? The final peril of Adventism in the realm of education is an indistinct curriculum, culture, and mission. We're not just a knockoff, a nice knockoff from the public schools. Thank you, no thank you. Everything we do, every fiber of our being, every act is intentional for the purpose of directing our children to their destiny on earth and their eternal destiny throughout the ceaseless ages in heaven. If you don't think every part of society is aligned against your kids, I don't know what planet you're living on. You can't turn to the left or the right without some tasty little morsel being dangled in front of them with a deadly hook for a lifelong addiction or dysfunction. And if ever there was a day when we need to watch all of the arrows move in one direction, which is only going to come as we come back to our seminal documents, as we come back to the principle of Scripture and the principles of the writings of the spirit of prophecy, this will be the only way. It's not the sophistication of our technology or the wonderful layout of our physical plant. It's not how many layers of offerings we have. In the end, we understand that to remake the child in the image of God is the goal of Christian education. It is hanging so disproportionately on the prayerful, intentional, unbending focus of moms, dads, teachers, and preachers who all have just one goal, They can see that the day is fast approaching. Jesus soon will come. It's time for our class trips and our outdoor encounters to work inside the spectrum that's been defined for us in breaking the bonds of fashion and the mesmerism with technology. Nothing works like God's created nature. Which is why we're adding to the curriculum at Village. It's not just a journey to Camp Asaba, which is wonderful. Praise God, one of the nicest camps you're ever going to go to. But now it's going to be an encounter in the hills of Kentucky and Tennessee, coordinating with Southern University. Now it's going to be an outdoor laboratory in the Keys of Florida. It's also going to be the pristine, bonding, building wilderness of the Boundary Waters. It's not just those. It's the fact that there's a beautiful 30-some bed garden outside our school with a beautiful pergola and a brand new in-process barn going up out there. It's the very fabric of who we are bending back to that way that can break the mesmerizing spell of this age. No more entertainment parks, thank you, no thank you. Have we never read any of these books that talk about the difference between recreation and entertainment? The chief subjects of the study in these schools of the prophets was sacred history. What kind of history did I say? Sacred. Sacred history. Why not teach this in the constructs of the great controversy? Why not show them that the the iron and the clay wouldn't bond together? And it doesn't matter what Charlemagne did or Napoleon or Hitler. Why not go into the details that show God turning the tide of history? My wife bought me a book at Goodwill. That's one of the better places to buy books. Fits my budget. Because I have a church school to keep going. How about you? I read an interesting story in there about the bridge at Remagen. Hitler knew the Rhine was like this big moat. And he knew if he could blow up all the bridges across the Rhine, he could be relatively secure. But this one bridge, the Allies captured. And they flooded across that bridge and got enough of a beachhead, if you want to call it that, on the other side of a river. And the demise of fascism and Nazism was doomed. God himself kept the door open. God himself. Sacred music. What kind of music? Sacred, Sacred, thank you. And if we need a definition on that, let's not go to the modern age, let's back it up a generation or two and see if we can't go back to the tried and the true, the historic. I didn't say there's no place for new songs, but there are principles of sacred music that make that distinct from the mechanisms of the modern rock and roll. Poetry. Great men, like Abraham Lincoln, loved poetry. The manner of instruction was far different from that in theological schools of the present day from which many students graduate with less real knowledge of God and religious truth than when they entered. That's a painful line. I'm not going to take the time to read through these things, but I will do just a little more, as now as in the days of Israel, every youth should be instructed in the duties of practical life. Each should acquire a knowledge of some branch of manual labor by which if need be, he may obtain or she may obtain a livelihood. This is essential, not only as a safeguard against the vicissitudes of life, but from its bearing upon. Pastor, it's so dated. Only 2.5% of people live on farms anymore. Have you tried to find a good tradesman today? By the way, they make sometimes two, three, four, five, six times as much money as I do. Yeah, I know, pastor, but but you know, I really want to move on. That's just a setup. because she says it's a safeguard against the vicissitudes of life, but from its bearing upon physical not only is against the vicissitudes of life, but in regards to its bearing upon the physical, say, yeah, I got that, the mental and the moral development. It appears that those things have fallen off the shelf of our modern discussions, that somehow learning how to swing a hammer, hold a saw, deal with scissors, run a sewing machine, use a shovel, a hoe, a rake, I'll tell you, I know some pretty powerful, prestigious people who grew up on farms and their real education preceded institutions of higher learning and they never lost the noble humility of being a down-to-earth person who knew in the end that for all the letters after their name, they were just still plain old... What does the moral and mental componentry of laziness have to do with Christianity? More than I could tell, and subject matter I don't want to reflect on, but I want to tell you a person who loves to work and loves to serve is on the road to not only a good life in every way, unless they overwork, but they're on the road to a completely different encounter with the moral work that goes into the reshaping of habits and appetites. It was a crime in ancient Israel to raise a child who did not know how to work a trade. Without physical exercise, no one can have a sound constitution and a vigorous health, and the discipline of well-regulated labor is no less essential to securing of a strong and active mind and a noble character. So what do we need, friends? Friends. We need distinctly spiritual and loving preachers. We need distinctly spiritual and loving parents. We need distinctly spiritual and loving teachers. We need distinctly spiritual and loving churches. And we need distinctly spiritual and Christ-centered curriculums, missions, and cultures. Can you say amen? Amen. This is the call of God. COVID-19 looms over us as the first sense that we could have a semi-legitimate reason to knock the props out from underneath generations of buildup. But God is calling us all back to a life where there is this devotion that builds for Christ. It's not just devotional time. It's an actual devotion. We have to bring a warmth and a strength into the experience of our encounters with our children that comes from Christ alone. We must be reading the spirit of prophecy. We must have a burden for the lost. We must be coming out to the meetings of the church, so that something more outside of our own little bubble. You know, right now, that inside your own little immunological bubble, there's no need for mask or social distancing. We need to create a spiritual bubble. So what does distinct spirituality look like? Here's where we all need to go. At home, at school, at church. Finally, brethren, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good report, if there's any excellence and if there's any worth of praise, Dwell on these things. The things you've heard, learned, and received in me. Practice these things. And your school won't be in peril. Actually, it says you'll have peace. I want to say thank you at the end of this message to the God of heaven who is sustaining our efforts. If you didn't see the mission portion of the Sabbath school, watch it. I want to say thank you to every dedicated volunteer. I want to say thank you to every dedicated parent. I want to say thank you to every dedicated teacher and administrator. I want to say praise the Lord that if God be for us, who can be against us? But we better figure out which way forward is and all press together so we can get there. I have no intention, because God has no intention, of watching things go backwards when they can go forward. It's just gonna means we're all gonna have to step up and be the leaders God called us to be. Wherever you're at, whatever sphere you're in, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Yeah, we heard you, Pastor. Go back and read the first chapter of Joshua. I think God says it to him five times. Just don't go to the left and don't go to the right. And nobody will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. That, friends, is where I want to be. How about you? All right, let's go.